Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, March 10th. Today's show focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Isabel Danzis. And I'm Jay Doherty. And here are this week's feature stories. Strike Accord is WFUV's quarterly public service campaign. Each quarter, we choose to highlight nonprofits in the New York City area that do work centered around a specific theme. This quarter, our focus is staying safe and resilient. We take a look at organizations that work to strengthen and empower communities. My co-host, Isabel Danzis, spoke with the director of Queensboro Initiatives at the Center for Justice Innovation about their work. My name is Erica McSwain. I'm currently the director of Queensboro Initiatives for the Center for Justice Innovation, overseeing our two community justice centers in Jamaica and Far Rockaway, as well as our Nassau County Youth Initiatives. Justice system reform through the lens of the community. Like, why is that important? So it's important that everyone who interacts with the justice system feels that they're entering a system and really being given like a fair chance. So it's also important that there are systems in place that don't just work to keep someone revolving throughout the system, but also provides them with an opportunity um, to address their wrongdoings, but um, given the resources to also help them prevent going through the justice system repeatedly. How does working to reform the justice system impact the community at large? Yeah, so really thinking about creating safety, safer communities is the core of the reform work we do at the center and increasing public spaces, uh, public safety within spaces that are deemed as unsafe, increasing mobility out of poverty, um, including community voice in the work that we do. Um, it all helps to provide residents um, in the communities where we reside an opportunity to really foster positive neighborhood changes um, to keep community members from seeking to participate in negative activities. Um, so really the key is to reach people prior to their involvement and help them to overcome challenges. I know this is a broad question and a big question, but what can kind of be done to fix the justice system? Yeah, that is a broad question. And I feel like um, that's something that's going to take time really to do. Um, opportunities for quicker resolutions is always something that we can look into. Um, and strengthening equity throughout all parts of the justice system could really help to begin making those positive changes. Um, so looking at alternative to incarceration, alternative to detention programming for those more low level offenses. Also utilizing innovative programs that sees a, a person for who they are beyond their challenges and beyond the charges that they may have. And for um, ways that we can support them, ways that their family and friends can support them, really building that holistic um, partnership between everyone within the community to help them to heal. What do you kind of hope that like the people that you work with, but also the communities that, you know, are then impacted, what do you hope that they take away? Yeah, so the center wants all people and communities that we work with to take ownership and changes that are happening within their communities. And community voice really drives all the work that we do, um, including the decision on what type of program we even implement at all of our different justice centers. Uh, we want people and communities to know that they deserve and um, to have the same resources available to them um, from those communities that are in more high income uh, communities. Um, but we want them to know also that their voice matters and that they should be included in the decisions that are happening within their community. So we hope that that's really what they take away from the work that they're doing, really empowering them to be the voices of change. 
All right, great. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Of course, have a good one. That was me, speaking with Erica McSwain, director of Queensboro Initiatives at the Center for Justice Innovation, about her work strengthening communities in New York City. Road Recovery is a music-driven nonprofit that helps people through opioid addiction recovery. In a time when opioid overdoses are on the rise in New York City, WFUV's Maya Sargent finds out how they are assisting New Yorkers in need. There is an opioid epidemic in New York. That was confirmed last month when the New York State Department of Health released its quarterly report. Statistics confirmed two things about overdoses. One, overdose deaths have increased by 14% statewide. And two, visits to the ER have increased by over 30%. The numbers are raising the concerns for experts like Pat Awesome. Awesome is the vice president of the Consumer Clinical Content Development at Partnership to End Addiction. That's a nonprofit in the city. Right now, Pat is particularly concerned with the quality of the drug supply. She says the current supply is being corrupted by fentanyl. Fentanyl is an extremely powerful opioid. Some statistics would say 50 times more powerful than heroin, 100 times more powerful than morphine. Fentanyl has found its way into MDMA, ecstasy and counterfeit pills, and it can cause respiratory problems, nausea and even death. But it's not the only contender harming users. Xylazine is an animal tranquilizer. It is not approved for human use, but it is increasingly being used because, as I understand it, for people who are using fentanyl, it extends the the length of the high. While the addition of drugs like fentanyl and xylazine are exacerbating the crisis in New York, this isn't the first time the city has endured an opioid epidemic. Back in the 1990s, New York City saw a rise in overdose deaths as a result of prescription opioids. And one organization has been around to see the trends evolve. Road Recovery is a nonprofit that uses music to help young people with addiction and recovery. They started in the 90s and they're still going strong today. Co-founder Gene Bowen tells me how he and his friend Jack Bookbinder began their journey. It was inspired by their own adversities. Gene's was substance misuse, and Jack's was type 2 diabetes. It basically started with myself and Jack Bookbinder. Jack Bookbinder is a manager in the music industry. I was a tour manager. Then basically, my means of coping skills was drugs and alcohol, and the lifestyle and the insanity of touring fit perfectly with that. A few years later, in 1992, Gene decided he needed to get clean. As he started vocalizing his struggles, so did the people around him. So he knew he needed to create a resource to help. To help teach healthy coping skills, to help teach life skills, and to help teach communication skills with youth. Gene says music is the universal language that has allowed their work to continue for 25 years. Collectively, through art, can create something that can transcend distance and language and culture. Co-founder Jack Bookbinder tells me Road Recovery does this by collaborating with various organizations across the state. They host weekly sessions that culminate in a final performance. He describes the layout of each class. You would see a room full of music equipment that we would bring in, maybe some gear, light DJ equipment. It could be opportunities for dance. We'd have art supplies. And we kind of ask what the kids want to do creatively. Both Gene and Jack say the mentors are the backbone of the program. The mentors are amazing. They're credible messengers. 
they are sharing what they've been through in their lives with addiction recovery or another adversity and what their solutions are. He's talking about people like Susan Campanaro. She's been a mentor at Road Recovery for nearly 12 years. I used when I was young. So from 12 to 24, that's when I was in active addiction. And so for me, I'm very compassionate with the young people. I understand where they're coming from. She says it's the best thing in her life. Like I've seen how these young people that we've been working with, they go from being like really, really shy and introverted and can't talk to laughing and singing and being open. And Susan says these are skills they take with them for the rest of their lives. Jack says they keep in touch with Road Recovery's alumni network. He says nothing beats being able to see the kids he works with succeed. They've gone on to very healthy and productive lives, get married, are giving us stories about what's happening in their lives. So when I ask what makes Road Recovery different, founder Jean says Road Recovery has been giving young people a chance for the past 25 years. By providing them a safe space from which they can gain traction, they can make mistakes, they can trial by fire, and they can start to realize and learn how to navigate this thing called life on life's terms. You can find videos and live streams of Road Recovery's performances on their YouTube channel and follow their developments online at www.roadrecovery.org. With WFUV News, I'm Mayor Sargent. That was WFUV's Maya Sargent speaking with members of Road Recovery about their work. Elizabeth Seton Hospital in Yonkers has been a home for kids with complex medical conditions for over 30 years. The residential center has given them the chance to not only survive, but to thrive and pursue a full life. In the first part of this two-part series, WFUV's Nicoletta Papabasalakis walked us through the one-of-a-kind care provided at Elizabeth Seton Hospital and how they are addressing the national problem these children face when they age out of the pediatric system. In part two, Nicoletta sits down with hospital CEO Pat Tercy and international spokesperson Stephanie Gabbard. They share the work that Elizabeth Seaton is doing to take care of kids in New York. Stephanie Gabbard moved to Elizabeth Seaton Children's Hospital when she was a baby. Ever since then, she and the hospital CEO, Pat Tercy, have shared a special bond. I met Pat when I was two years old. And that's how she became my princess. Yes. Tercy watched Gabbard grow up, and together, they watched the hospital evolve. Tercy says that over the years, more kids have been outliving the life expectancies of their childhood illnesses. When I came, we used to um, not see that, and it was always so very sad. And now we have this wonderful gift where our children are maturing and you know, transitioning to young adults. But once children grow out of the pediatric system, they have nowhere to go. Their only choice is to move into geriatric facilities. When Gabad turned 20, the fear of leaving her home started to set in. I was afraid that I would end up in a nursing home. It doesn't really help young adults like, like us and like me and my friends. Right now, there are no medical centers geared towards young adults. Tracy says that geriatric facilities are not suited to their needs. She calls this the aging out crisis. Adult practitioners have never experienced these childhood diseases because the kids didn't live that long. So one is just understanding how to care for a child that's now a young adult. 
And then secondly, I think that the nursing homes themselves aren't really equipped and don't have the funding and the support and all the resources. Tercy says it never felt right discharging the kids in the first place. How can you look a parent in the eye and say, okay, we've cared for your child for, you know, many instances. It's their lifetime, 21 years. They came as babies. So to say, you know, now you're sort of on your own, that fear for parents was just so agonizing. 30% of young adults that went on to senior facilities did not survive past the first year of living. It got to a point where Tercy said enough was enough. I can really vividly remember it and at a memorial for one of our young adults who um, passed and spoke with his mom and the staff and we just sort of committed that we're just never going to do it again. And since then, Tercy has kept that promise. There are now 25 young adults, including Gabad, living at the children's hospital. But she knows there's a need for change. Now, Tercy and Gabad are working to build the nation's first young adult care facility. The excellence and the quality of life and the care can't end when you turn 21. The new center comes at a cost of $30 million, and raising this money wasn't easy. We really worked hard about you know, getting the word out, getting people to rally behind this. Tercy says getting this word out couldn't have been done without Gabad. As the international spokesperson, Gabad is the voice of Elizabeth Seen's kids. Tercy says it's a role that she takes very seriously. Because she's able to express what some of our children are only able to express through facial expressions, gestures, but, you know, to actually be able to verbalize and express the feelings. Stephanie's one of our few residents that can do that. Kabad says she is building her dream home. When the facility is complete in 2024, it will house almost 100 young adults. It is also a pilot program for New York. There, they'll collect data to replicate similar care centers throughout the state. For Tercy, this is money well spent. And Kabad says a weight has been lifted off her shoulders. It took, like, my whole anxiety away. Oh, it's just, it's just a blessing and a, a miracle to be here and to be healthy. With WFUV News, I'm Nicoletta Papavasilakis. That was WFUV's Nicoletta Papavasilakis talking about Elizabeth Seton Hospital and the work they're doing to support young adults who have aged out of pediatric facilities. In honor of Women's History Month, WFUV will be featuring a series of stories that explore complex women's health issues. This year, New York City made medication abortion pills available for free at four clinics, but recent legislation could limit that access nationwide. WFUV's Maya Sargent again on what's happening on a federal level to threaten the availability of free medication abortion in New York State. New York City has once again proven they are a front-runner in reproductive health care. In January, the city started offering free abortion pills at four sexual health clinics. The city is investing $1.2 million in this rollout that will aim to make 10,000 abortion pills available over the next year. In Mayor Adams' announcement, he explained why access to medication abortion is so crucial. It's because historically, women's health has not been prioritized. And we saw that so clearly last year when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court's decision has endangered women's health across the nation. Since Roe has been repealed, anti-abortion initiatives have popped up all over the country. 
New York City has always been a beacon of leadership in this nation, and we're going to continue to lead. Most recently, federal judge Matthew Kuzmarek proposed legislation that would ban medication abortion across all 50 states. That would even affect states like New York where it is currently accessible. Right now, women in New York can access this pill without documentation or insurance. No other city in the nation or in the world has a public health department that is providing medication abortion. We are the first. The medication provides an alternative option for women who are not able to get a surgical abortion. Laura Wery, assistant professor of economics and public service at New York University, explains why access to a free pill breaks down some of the barriers women face when looking to have an abortion. The cost of abortion or getting together the resources to cover abortion is often cited as a reason um, for why women have delayed abortion care. Wary says it's hugely important that the pill is not only free, but accessible and convenient across the city. She says it will allow women to consider if they want to invest in having a child right now. They feel like having a child right now may interfere with future opportunities. So maybe goals they have for their career or their educational attainment. Wary says her own research has shown that women have more opportunities when they have better access to abortion and contraception. Showing that when women have better access to these types of, of reproductive health care, they're better off in terms of their educational attainment. They're more likely to graduate from high school, more likely to attend college. Um, they do better in their careers, have higher earnings. But even then, Wary says medication abortion isn't a perfect solution. To use this type of care, you have to recognize pretty early on that you're pregnant. So you can only use that within the first 11 weeks. Worry says it's just as important for women to have access to surgical abortions as well. Sansara Taylor, the co-initiator for Rise Up for Abortion Rights, an organization fighting for reproductive equality, agrees. She hopes other states around the country follow in New York's footsteps in terms of accessibility, especially now that access to medication abortion is at risk you actually see a deepening and explosive divide. And one side or the other is going to win out. While the battle over abortion access rages on, Taylor has seen a shift in the landscape. There's been a lot more openness and destigmatizing of abortion. But even in light of these changes, abortion access isn't guaranteed in the long term, even in states like New York, where current access could be affected by federal legislation. That people, especially in places like New York City are really taking for granted the fact that this assault on abortion has not hit them yet. She wants to reframe how people think about the issue. We would not say we have freedom of speech in this country if it was overturned by the Supreme Court and taken away in 20 states. You wouldn't say, oh yeah, but at least we have it in New York. Elizabeth Estrada has seen this divide between New York and other states. She's the New York field and advocacy manager at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. She says although she lives in New York, 42% of Latinas between the ages of 15 and 49 live in states that have banned or are likely to ban abortion. She says immediately these women are faced with additional financial and social barriers other than the abortion procedure itself. Getting childcare to go, taking a day off work, it means paying for a flight, paying for cabs, paying for a bus, and then perhaps even being subjected to immigration checkpoints. Estrada says that since Roe was overturned, 
many of the women she works with have expressed confusion. Many of us are scared. We're uninformed about what the laws, even here in New York, I talk to people in the community, Latinas and immigrants and non-English speaking people who are confused about what even the laws here in the state are, even in a progressive state like New York. And that confusion is amplified by legislation working its way through the courts. While medication abortion remains free and available in New York State for now, future decisions on the federal level could eventually limit that access. For WFUV News, I'm Maya Sargent. That was WFUV's Maya Sargent, reporting on how federal legislation could impact New York State's ability to continue providing free medication abortion. Throughout Women's History Month, WFUV's What's What will focus on women's health. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews, just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Isabel Danzis. And I'm Jay Doherty.